0: If you don't recognize me, my name is Chris McCluskey. I'm actually the senior pastor up at Grace Point Church, and Grace Point and Restoration are sister churches, and so myself and Pastor Brian up at Grace Point, we have the privilege to come down here about every, say, one of us about every four weeks or so and preach and be a part of the ministry here as well. So it's a a real privilege for me to be here this morning and uh, to spend some time with you and worship with you. But um, last week, we began a new sermon series entitled A Changed Life, Confronting the Scrooge in Each of Us. And each week, we're considering one truth from Scripture and illustrating that truth through a short video clip and then a dramatic reading based on A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Now, you'll see that we've taken some creative liberty when it comes to our dramatic reading each week, but together, we'll consider what could have happened in Scrooge's life after the visit of each of the spirits. Now, last Sunday, we looked at Ebenezer Scrooge's encounter with the ghost of Christmas past and how he allowed the past to haunt him. Today, as we continue the series, we'll look at Scrooge's encounter with the ghost of Christmas present. And in our video clip now, we catch up with Scrooge at the end of this encounter.
1: The warehouse yard was not where Ebenezer Scrooge expected the spirit to leave him. Why couldn't he have taken Scrooge back to his bedroom chambers like the previous spirit visited him? Realizing his need to get home, Scrooge began to run out of the yard and towards the street calling after the spirit. Spirit! Spirit! Time passed more slowly than it had before with the spirit. Before long, Scrooge found himself back at his home. His lack of exercise quickly caught up with him, and each step became more and more difficult than the previous. He took a moment to ease his breathing, and with each deep breath, Scrooge recalled the different moments of his encounter with the spirit. Now certain of his decisions, Scrooge speaks out loud to himself. Prisons! Workhouses! Ha! We built those for a reason. That's where they should go. The sloths! If only they'd work! Or their parents had worked, rather than to try to get them something for nothing. Then we could decrease the surplus population. Send them all. All of them. The sick the poor, the cripple. In Scrooge's heart, he hated the less fortunate. The trouble they brought the city, the burden they placed on the rest of the citizens, were much too much for Scrooge. He truly considered them to be a surplus population. As his anger and temper began to rise, he paced the room. As if calling to him, Scrooge looked to the large, high-backed chair next to his fireplace on the arm of the chair was his walking stick. Instantly, his mind flashed to the image of Tiny Tim. Considering the walking stick to be more than what it was, he held it as though it were Tiny Tim himself. Scrooge's heart began to soften. Attempting to hold back tears, Scrooge sighed and said, Tiny Tim, What about him? Not Tiny Tim. Poor boy. If only he could receive the care he needs to get well. It wouldn't take much. It isn't his fault. He can't help the life he was given. Prison for Tiny Tim? May it never be. He'd surely die. Scrooge felt the tension between his heart and his mind. There was a bitter struggle between the love, if you could call it that, for Tiny Tim and his disgust for the derelicts of society. Clearing his throat, Scrooge said, We have those who truly suffer before us. Perhaps a little charity could go a long way, even for the rest. However, in time, his disgust got the better of him, and he exclaimed, Bah! I work hard and already pay my taxes so that the prisons are upheld and meet their purpose. Feeling reassured and justified, he returned to his pacing. As he crossed the room, his right foot caught something heavy on the floor. As heavy as the weight on his mind and the black of his heart, Scrooge looked to see the old Bible that had fell from the mantel. His foot, worse for the wear, he picked up the Bible and turned it over in his hands. As if the worn gold letters, Holy Bible, on the dusty covenant were a direct offense to him, he tossed the book aside again. Scrooge muttered, Ah! Dusty old Bible! Fool book it is! There is nothing you can offer me! Determined now that he could get some sleep, he turned back to his chair and headed for bed have been taking no more than two steps. The bell began to toll. Suddenly, Jacob Marley came to mind, and the fact that there was one more spirit to visit him, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Frozen by fear, Scrooge stood where he was and waited for his next visit.
0: Scrooge was blind to the suffering of those around him those who were different from himself and his way of life. But that didn't stop Jesus Christ. Jesus healed those who were different from him, those who were outside of the Jewish community. I want to read our passage today. I want to see how Jesus heals a leper, he heals a Roman centurion, and goes on to heal many others as well. Matthew chapter 8. We'll start at verse 1 and read to verse 17. If you have a Bible, you can open it up and follow along, or you can follow along on the screens as I read. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed from his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done, just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill but it was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Scrooge had one perspective on the suffering, and that was that he basically ignored them. He knew they were around, but he made it very convenient to ignore them and basically made his heart cold towards them. And he went along with his life thinking that's just fine. Until one day, uh, as we saw on the clip, he was visited by the this, this spirit, this ghost of Christmas present. And this ghost began to open up his eyes a little bit to the suffering around him that was going on in his own city. He began, Scrooge began to see that, that those who had so much less than he had were somehow able to find joy, somehow able to find uh, life amongst their meager resources. And slowly Scrooge's heart began to melt a little bit. And an attention began to build in his heart. And it was this. These people actually have some value. And could he really love those people, those he had separated himself from? And that that tension began to just swirl around in Scrooge's heart and Scrooge's mind. Now, as we think about that, you may not think of yourself as being quite as cold-hearted as Ebenezer Scrooge. But, you know, all of us have a tendency to lose sight of the suffering that is around us. And you might say, why is that? Why, why is that our tendency? Well, I'm going to give you a few ideas. One is because we're busy. You know, we look at our lives and we say, you know, I can barely keep up with my own schedule. Uh, with, with My family responsibilities, my, my interests, my hobbies, my job, all the things i got going on. I don't have time to think about anyone else. So we're busy. Another reason why I think we lose sight of the, of the suffering around us is because we think we're better. Now, we wouldn't say that out loud, okay, but in our heart, in our mind, sometimes we, we see people who are hurting. Now, if they're hurting because of, say, cancer or some other kind of disease, oftentimes we give them a break. And we're like, okay, great, well, you didn't do that, so I can show you kindness and love. But, but there's another kind of a hurting, suffering person that we come across, and sometimes we're pretty judgmental. Maybe somebody who can't seem to keep a job. Or someone who, because of their own destructive choices, maybe addictions or whatever it might be, has brought a lot of harm into their lives. Or, or maybe someone that's even suffering from mental illness. There are times we look down our nose at that kind of person. And we think to, to ourselves, again, we probably don't say it out loud, but what's your problem? Get a job. Work harder. Take some classes. You know, get up off your butt and go out and, and do what it takes to do to be successful. In the, in the book, The Christmas Carol, there is a, um, a, just a, a devastating line that is said by Scrooge's nephew. And it's funny because he actually says this line um, being very positive about Christmas and how it has the power to to unify people. But it's pretty clear that that it's a a great uh, conviction, really, for the way Scrooge lives his life. Here's what Scrooge's nephew says at one point in the book. He says, Christmas is the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. Charles Dickens is making it very clear that Scrooge is one of those people who looks upon others as, um, especially those who are poor, those who are downtrodden, those who are suffering, as those of another race, those who are below him. And frankly, I think for a lot of us in our own self-righteousness, in our own self-assurance, in our own judgmental perspective, we feel the same way. So we lose sight of the suffering around us. Sometimes it's because we're too busy. Sometimes it's because we think we're better. And then finally, we're bitter. We lose sight of people's own hurts because we're so wrapped up in our hurts, our problems, our pain. And again, we think to ourselves, you know, when I think about all I'm going through personally, my health issues, my family problems, my depression, my money problems, I can't be bothered with anyone else because, you know what, no one's helping me. No one's coming along and rescuing me out of my issues and my problems, so why can't they take care of themselves? To put it in Dickens' terms, we're ignorant, like the one child, to the want, like the other child, of others around us. And it's because we're busy, and it's because we think we're better, and it's because we're bitter about our own crisis, about our own trials, about our own problems. So what do we do with that? Where do we go with that attitude, that whole perspective? Well, as followers of Jesus Christ, our job is to turn to Jesus himself and see how Jesus can speak into our lives. What would Jesus, or how would Jesus challenge Ebenezer Scrooge's perspective, as well as our own, when it comes to the suffering of those around us? One of the best places to look to answer that question, I believe, is in Jesus' healing ministry. What was Jesus doing when he healed people? What was he demonstrating about himself? What was he demonstrating about the condition of the world that we live in? What was he modeling for us that we could imitate as his followers? Well, just a few moments ago, I read to you Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And I want us to kind of walk through those miracles for a few moments here and see indeed what Jesus is doing. What do the healing miracles of Jesus demonstrate? Well, the first one is this, that Jesus loves the outcast. He loves the outcast and the hurting. Jesus starts by healing a leper. Now, a leper in... First century Jewish culture would have been an extreme outcast. Because of his condition, he would have been isolated from the greater community. He would have been forced to wear torn clothes, forced to wear a a veil that covered at least the bottom portion of his face. When he walked anywhere near other people, he would have to shout out, unclean, unclean, because if you were to touch a leper as a Jewish person, you would become ceremonially unclean as well in that moment. Jesus could have very easily ignored this man's plea for help. And you know what? No one would have thought any less of Jesus because no one pays attention to the lepers. No one loves the lepers. But Jesus doesn't ignore him. He heals him. In fact, the text says that he reached out his hand and touched the man. Jesus didn't have to touch him. It was a shocking act of love and compassion when Jesus touched this man. For, again, by touching a leper, a person would automatically become unclean as well. But Jesus did reach out and touch him. And that touch from Jesus Christ may have been the first kind touch that that leper had felt in years. Maybe the only touch that leper had felt for the longest time was someone taking a pole and jabbing it at that man, just saying, stay away, stay away, don't touch me. But Jesus touched him. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the man was healed of his disease. See, the touch of Jesus could do that to any life. Then we have the Roman centurion. His servant was ill. His servant was suffering. Now, this Roman centurion was an officer. He was a Gentile, probably in charge of 100 men. But he was not part of the Jewish race. But somehow he becomes aware of Jesus' healing ministry. And this man comes to Jesus Believing in the power that Jesus has and the authority that Jesus has. And he he comes hoping that Jesus could do something for his servant who is paralyzed and suffering terribly. And then there is a huge ethnic and cultural gap between Jesus and this man. Jesus does not ignore this man, he doesn't shun his plea. In fact, when the centurion says, Jesus, you don't have to come to my house to heal, I understand authority. And you have the authority to heal simply by your words. So just say the word and my servant will be healed. Well, Jesus is very impressed by that. In fact, he uses the faith of this Gentile man to rebuke the Jews and to tell them that one day there will be this great messianic banquet in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That comes after Jesus' second coming. But it will not be your birthright, Jesus says. It will not be your race that gets you into that messianic banquet. Instead, it will be your faith in Jesus, no matter what your background, no matter what your heritage, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. It will be your faith that makes all the difference. Then there's the miracle of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law of this fever, probably malaria. And in response, she gets up and begins serving Jesus out of a thankful heart that he would care for her in that way. And then finally, again the end of our text, when, the evening, when evening came, the crowds of demon-possessed people, of sick people, come to Jesus for healing and for help. And Jesus doesn't turn them away. He embraces them. He embraces their suffering, and he pours his power and his love into their lives. So what's clear here is that Jesus isn't worried about any man-made barriers or boundaries that would separate him from other people. He steps right over those boundaries in order to show true love to these people and to bring healing to those who are hurting, those who are suffering, those who might easily consider themselves an outcast. Mark Buchanan is a pastor and a writer, and he uh, writes about an encounter that he had with another pastor by the name of Jim Cimbala. Now, Jim Cimbala is the pastor of a church called Brooklyn Tabernacle. You maybe have heard of Brooklyn Tabernacle. They have a tremendous ministry in the borough of Brooklyn. to it's really all those who live around that church, reaching... Literally thousands of people. They're actually very famous for a midweek prayer gathering they do. And people even not from Brooklyn Tabernacle come to those prayer gatherings, knowing that God works powerfully in and through prayer. Well, Mark Buchanan went to one of these prayer gatherings, and after it was over, he had the privilege to have dinner with Jim Cymbala, And they're sitting down to dinner, and they're talking. And at one point, Jim Cimbala looks at Mark and says, Mark, do you know what the number one sin of the church in America is? Mark didn't really say anything. He waited because he didn't want to get it wrong. And so... Jim Symbolist says, well, it's not pornography, and it's not sexual sin, and it's not dishonesty or divorce or any of the typical things we might think. And Buchanan says, here's what Symbolist said. He said, the number one sin of the church in America is that its pastors and leaders are not on their knees crying out to God, bring us the drug addicted.'" Bring us the prostitutes. Bring us the destitute. Bring us the gang leaders. Bring us those with AIDS. Bring us the people nobody else wants, whom only you can heal. And let us love them in your name until they're made whole. Buchanan writes I had no response. I was undone. He had laid me bare, found me out, and exposed my fraudulence. I was the chief of sinners. I had never prayed, not once, for God to bring such people to my church. So I went home and I repented. I stopped sinning and I began to cry out for those nobody wants. And I'll tell you, I read this and and I was shredded myself because I know I haven't prayed that way as a pastor, for God to bring to us those that nobody wants. You know, I wonder if... If Grace Point, excuse me, as a Restoration Church, you're you're only a couple of months old, if that could become a prayer for this church, Lord, bring us those that nobody wants, that only you can heal, and we'll love them until they're made whole in you. See, for for most of us, that's not the prayer we pray. We say, God, keep those people out of my life. Keep them away from me. And when we see those kinds of folks coming towards us, what do we do? We walk the other way. You know, we look the other way. We don't want them in our lives because they'll... You know, make our life uncomfortable. We'll have to give to them. We'll have to change our schedule. We'll have to rearrange things. So we try to avoid them. Cymbala, Jim Cymbala says, we need to be praying that God would bring them into our lives, into our churches. Because why? Because that's what Jesus Christ did. In his healing ministry, he reached out to those who were the outcasts and the hurting, and he brought wholeness to their lives. Well, there's a a second thing I think that we see in, in Jesus' healing ministry, and that is, that Jesus desires to relieve suffering of all kinds. See, Jesus wasn't satisfied with the condition of the world the way he found it when he came. He sees the suffering, he sees the pain, he sees the heartache, and he wants to do something about it. It, Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus' primary ministry was to come back, excuse me, was to come to to earth and seek and save those who were lost, those who were lost spiritually, to, to rescue us from our sinful condition Take us out of our spiritual bondage, set us free from the penalty of our sins, that we could be forgiven, we could enter into a relationship with God and have abundant life on earth with God and then ultimately eternity with God in heaven. That was Jesus' number one mission. But yet he still wants to relieve earthly suffering as well. The suffering of the leper and the centurion's servant and Peter's mother in law and the demon possessed was devastating. And Jesus wanted to relieve them of that physical, emotional, mental suffering and anguish because he knew that that affected their spiritual lives as well. Jesus' healing is a display of the love of God in action. God's love compels him to be good and kind to others who are in desperate need of help. It's a reflection of God's character and the will of God when he healed like that. See, for all the suffering that is around us was not God's original plan. For humanity. And, and that takes us to the third truth that Jesus' healing miracles demonstrate. And that is that most Bible scholars believe that part of what Jesus was doing when he healed in these miraculous ways was pointing to the fact that this is not the way life's supposed to be, and one day life's going to be very different. See, in the Garden of Eden, when God first created humanity, before sin entered into the world, our existence didn't include death. It didn't include disease and mental illness and uh, emotional anguish and broken relationships. We were created to be in perfect fellowship with God and with one another. But then sin enters into the world because of our own rebellious sinful choices and our rejection of, of God's way and what God desired. And when sin comes into the world, it just messes everything up. Our bodies become affected. The relationships we have with other people becomes affected. And most damaging our relationship with God is affected. there's a separation. And we see it all around us, the effects of sin. And so much of the suffering in our world is really just a, a ripple effect because of our own sin and rebellion. But Jesus' healing miracles are actually, in that moment, a restoration to the way life was meant to be. In that moment, when, when Jesus heals the leper or the centurion's servant, he's saying, this is the way it was supposed to be. And, and in that time, shortly after that healing, that leper, that centurion servant, they actually experienced life the way it was meant to be all along. But then unfortunately, sin sort of finds its way back into that person's life and begins to destroy and diminish again. That's just the curse we're under in our current circumstances of life with sin in our lives and all around us. But Jesus is not only saying that's not the way it was meant to be, but he's saying it's the way it's going to be eventually. There will come a time when everything and everyone who knows Christ will be fully restored. When the power and the curse of sin will be gone. And Jesus' miracles point ahead to that time. You see, in verse 11, Jesus made a reference to this great messianic banquet that was to come where he said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about this messianic banquet. It's a reference to the return of Jesus when he will come back to earth once again and fully establish and manifest his kingdom on earth and make all things right. He will bring perfect justice, and he will renew creation itself. In fact, the apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8. Just a few verses here. But he's just pointing to that time that creation itself longs for, for all things to be restored. Here's what it says, chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You see, the miracles of Jesus are a foreshadowing of that very day, that very time to come when everything is made right and the suffering of creation and humanity comes to an end. So Jesus' miracles demonstrate very clearly that he loves the outcast and the hurting. He wants to relieve not only spiritual suffering but all kinds of human suffering and that all of his activity points to the way the world should be and one day will be under his supreme rule. And so with humanity in this difficult circumstance, under the curse of sin, knowing our condition, what did Jesus do beyond those healing miracles to bring lasting change, to bring true transformation to the hearts and to the lives of people? Where does the ultimate healing and transformation come from? Well, it began with the incarnation. When Jesus takes on human flesh and human weakness. He does that in order to gain victory for us. You know, Christmas is all about God's love compelling him to break into history and do something about our condition. Christmas ultimately is God's gift to us. Christmas is not our gift to God, but it's really God's gift to us. Jesus takes on human weakness, on human vulnerability, in order to suffer as we suffer, to heal our physical and human hurts. He identifies with our suffering. I love uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of the, of the Bible called The Message. One particular verse I think he does a great job with it, is John 1.14, and he tra- translates it this way. He says, The word, that is Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did. He came to identify with us and to understand our suffering and to bear some of that suffering. Matthew even at the end of our text today, quotes Isaiah 53, 4, where it says, He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Jesus came as God in the flesh and he experienced the pain and suffering of others and he healed our infirmities and our diseases. But you know what? It would go deeper than that. The incarnation was step one to a much greater mission. God didn't become a man simply to be an example and to identify with our pain. Jesus was born to die. See, so we go from the birth in the manger to the cross. Jesus came to bear our earthly infirmities, not just to heal us in a physical sense, but to help us break free from our spiritual bondage as well. In fact... Matthew quotes Isaiah 53, 4. But if you go back to that Isaiah text and read a couple more verses, you see the bigger picture of what Jesus came to do. So let's do that. Isaiah 53, not just verse 4, but all the way to verse 6. Let me read that to you. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus came to bear our brokenness, to bear our sin, to take the punishment that we deserved. And he took it all upon himself on the cross. That's where it happened. See, but it was in that moment of great, weakness from our perspective on the cross that his strength was dis- displayed and Jesus won his greatest victory for us. John Stott wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. It's a fantastic book that lays out all the different things that Jesus did when he died on the cross. But at the end of that book, he tries to really bring it home for the reader and he says, but the cross also relates to our suffering and the pain we see around us in our lives. And what Stott does is he he talks about, about all the, the, the the anguish that's around us, how millions of people find themselves in terrible uh, conditions, you know, people living in shanty towns in places like Africa and, and Asia or Latin America or the, or the Favalas in Brazil. In fact, he, he focuses in on Brazil for a moment and he says, you know, imagine that you are a, uh, a poor man who lives in the slums of Brazil and towering above you is the, this colossal statue of Christ, the Christ of Corcovado, that's a picture of it right there. And you look up at that statue all the time, and eventually you, you, you look at your conditions and the suffering around you, and you say, I'm fed up with this. I'm going to go talk to Jesus. And so you make that 2,300-foot climb up that mountain, and you get to the foot of that colossal statue of Jesus Christ, who is above everything, above all the shanty towns, all the favalas. And, and in frustration, you cry out to him, and you say, I have climbed up to meet you, Jesus from the filthy, confined quarters down there to put before you, most respectfully, these considerations. There are one million of us down here in these slums of this splendid city. And you, you remain here on Corcovado, surrounded by divine glory. Why? Go down there to be in the favelas. Don't stay away from us. Live among us. Give us new faith in you and in our Heavenly Father. What would Jesus say to that pilgrim? What would Jesus say to his question, to his his entreaty? What would would Jesus' response be? He would say, my son, look to the cross. I have come down among you. I have come down. I, I was and am one of you. And I suffered for you. And not only did I do that, but I continue to be among you. I continue to walk with you and give you hope and give you strength. I lived among you, and I still live among you. You see, we have this caricature sometimes in our minds that God is, is just sort of above us and just kind of hovering there watching from, you know, the, the, the view from 50,000 feet. But that's not the truth. The cross tells us that Jesus came and got dirty. Jesus came and lived in the neighborhood. Jesus came and, and walked in our shoes and felt our suffering, felt our pain. But more than that, the cross tells us that Jesus did something about it that will matter for all eternity because that is where he paid the price for us. You see, because you go from the, humili- excuse me, the, the lowliness of the manger to the humiliation of the cross but then comes the glory of the resurrection where Jesus rises from the dead and he conquers the power of sin once and for all. The sin that brought all that junk into our lives, all the suffering into our world, all the problems into our world. The resurrection conquered that forever. Conquered the power of sin, conquered the power of death. Now, it still lingers. But in our lives, through Jesus Christ, sin and death no longer has that controlling power, yeah, that eternal power and consequence. And so while we may suffer on this earth, and we do, and others do as well, we have found ultimate hope. We have found ultimate healing. We have found ultimate love and comfort in Jesus Christ. He loves us because we're his children. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so in the midst of our suffering on this earth, we have an eternal hope that will not die. That's what the cross tells us. So in light of what Jesus has modeled for us in his healings and has done for us on the cross, what ultimately is our response then today? How should we respond to the suffering of those around us? Well, certainly the greatest thing we can do for anyone is is to, no matter what their human condition, actually, whether good or bad, well, sick, whatever it might be, the greatest thing we can do for anybody is to direct them to Jesus Christ. He is their hope for forgiveness. He is their hope for new life. He is their hope for eternity in heaven. So our mission as followers of Christ is to direct people to Jesus, especially those who are suffering because he can bring them ultimate healing in their lives and transformation and a lasting peace that will help them overcome any circumstance. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, whether you are in tough circumstances right now or whether your life's going actually pretty good, that's where healing begins in your own decision of what am I going to do with Jesus? Am I going to believe in this guy? Is he really my Savior? Did he really die on the cross to pay for my sins? Did he really rise from the dead to conquer sin and death for me? Am I going to embrace him and believe in him? Or am I going to just keep him at arm's length? Just keep him in the manger. He's safe there. See, ultimate healing for us starts with our relationship with Jesus Christ. So I encourage you today, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can do that this very day saying, Jesus, I know that I've messed up and I'm a sinner. I know that, that my sin separates me from, from you, from God. But I believe today, Jesus, that your death on the cross was in my place and you paid for my sins. And then you rose from the dead to conquer sin and death for me. Jesus, come into my life. Rescue me from the penalty and the judgment of my sin. Be my closest friend and be the leader of my life. Help me to follow you wherever you may take me. That's a decision that only you can make and Really, that's where ultimate healing from any suffering you might be going through starts and and ends, really, with Jesus himself. So I hope and pray that if you've never made that decision, you would do that today. But our response to the suffering around us even goes beyond that. First, we need to wake up to it. We need to break out of our Scrooge-like ignorance and see the suffering and the want around us. We need to get over thinking that because we're busy or because maybe we think we're better or because we have some bitterness in our life, that that's a a worthy excuse for not responding to those around us who are hurting with God's love. Remember, Jesus wasn't satisfied with the human condition as he saw it, and neither should we be. Jesus did something about it, and so should we. Tim Keller calls Christianity a fighting religion, and by that he means that, that we are to fight for what is good, for what is right, for what is just. And he quotes C.S. Lewis, who said, when you see a slum or you see a cancer, we often respond by saying, that ought not to be. And then typically we try to do something to change the situation. And when we respond that way, we are imitating Jesus in his healing miracles. See, Jesus became weak in order to rescue us from our suffering. And our call, frankly, is to repent of our pride and in a sense become quote-unquote, weak as well, in that we are ready to give ourselves away to those who are hurting, to those who are suffering, as Jesus did. Rodney Stark is a sociologist and a historian, and um, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And what he notes is that in the first 300 years of Christianity's existence, around A.D. 40, there was maybe 1,000 Christians on the planet But then about 300 years later, by A.D. 350, there were 33 million Christians on the planet. And he he looks at that and he says, how in the world did that happen? That is unbelievable growth in just 300 years. Half the Roman Empire, he estimates at that point in time, was probably Christian by 350 A.D. And, And Stark looks at it and he says, one of the main reasons why Christianity gained credibility and ground in the Roman Empire was because of the way they responded to those who were suffering. You see, in uh, A.D. 165 and then later on in A.D. 251, there were major plagues that, that, that wreaked havoc in the Roman Empire. The sick were left to, to suffer and die alone. Families fled from their loved ones who would come down with the disease. Doctors would flee. The pagan priests and other leaders would flee a town the moment the plague would show up. Bodies still alive would be thrown into the streets and collected into heaps. But Rodney Stark writes that it was the response of Christians in the midst of these plagues that was so significant. He quotes an eyewitness to one of those plagues who wrote this, Most of the Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. But then Rodney Stark writes that in contrast to that response, what was the typical response to other leaders, other people that weren't necessarily Christians? Again, this same eyewitness wrote, Others behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. Rodney Stark makes it clear, it was the care and the love of Christians that helped many people actually survive the plague. And when those survivors got well, they looked at the Christians and they said, tell me about this Savior of yours. Tell me about this belief you have that would cause you to love me the way you did in my condition. I want to know what transforms a person like that. What makes a person love like that? And it was that response that caused Christianity to slowly grow and eventually explode. It was the love of Christians who loved the way Jesus loved that began to turn the world around. See, that's what we're called to do. Maybe not quite in such a dramatic fashion, but we're called to walk in Jesus' footsteps. There's not a plague ravaging the United States right now, but you know what? There's a lot of hurting and suffering people that if we would just kind of open up our eyes and say, Jesus, what can I do for that person or this family? or this region even, to love like you loved. I'm, I'm really excited about what uh, Restoration Church is doing with the Giving Tree uh, outreach you guys are doing this year, where there's 20 families that will be blessed this year because some of you guys took one of those tags and you bought the gift card, I guess the Target or Toys R Us, and then Ross said this Tuesday you're gonna, he's going to deliver those cards over to Walt Disney Elementary, and 20 families are going to really be blessed by this outpouring of love from Restoration Church. And that's a simple thing. It's not a huge thing. But you know what? It's something. It's making a difference for those 20 families. And they're going to know that somebody out there cares about them and loves them, maybe, even though they don't know them that well. And hopefully they'll get the message that Restoration Church is a church that's ready to love those that maybe nobody else wants to love. I think that's great. Up at Grace Point, we're doing, um, uh, through Salvation Army, what we call Angel Tree instead of Giving Tree. We're blessing a bunch of families that way as well. And then some students over at Lakeside School. We have a, a, a family, excuse me, a couple from our church up at Grace Point uh, named Greg and Amy Cole. Greg grew up at our church, and they have been um, serving in China, serving the Lord in China for about, uh, I guess, almost seven years now. And God has blessed them with the opportunity to run a camp. It's called Joy in the Journey Camp. And uh, Chinese uh, children from that province come to the camp for a week or maybe two weeks, and it's because it's China, they have to be careful how they talk about it. But it's, it's kind of a life skills camp. Mostly they teach them about how to speak English and some other life skills. But along the way, the counselors have an opportunity to talk to the, to, the, to the children that attend about Jesus Christ and hopefully explain the gospel to them, the good news of Christ. Anyway, Greg tells a story about a boy named Michael who came to the camp. In 2009, Michael showed up, and he, Greg, Greg says he obviously had authority issues. You know? he, he wasn't ready to listen to the counselors. He had some body piercings. You know, He tried to dress kind of goth-like, um, and, and he was really there to kind of make time with the girls, not really to listen to anything else. But, but he was there, and they also noticed that he had uh, scars on his wrists. Now, no one ever had a chance to really uh, sort of explore that with Michael, uh, but they knew there were some issues in his heart and his life. Next year, Michael comes back to camp again. Uh, this time, within about the first day or two, he becomes discouraged because he's a little older, and a lot of the other kids are much further advanced in their English than him, especially some of his friends. And he kind of feels, I don't know, put down by it all. So he packs up his gear, and he starts to walk home. And it's a pretty far walk, and, but he's determined to go home. Some of the counselors chase after Michael when they find out what he's done, and they, they, they catch up to him and say, Michael, please come back. We love you. We care about you. We'll help you catch up on your English. Don't worry about it. Come on back. Please don't go home. And Michael agreed. And he came back. And he said that was the first time that he felt someone really loved him. The fact that someone would pursue him and bring him back to the camp. He became invested in camp much greater after that. He wasn't there just for the girls anymore. He really wanted to learn. Really wanted to grow. Next year. It's time for winter camp. Greg finds out Just a couple of days before winter camp is supposed to start, that Michael tried to take his life, and he's in a local hospital. And when he's about to go visit Michael, uh, Nina, one of the other counselors, says, You know what's really funny, Greg? Is that Michael was here this morning, and he signed up for camp. And he said, The only reason why he signed up for camp is because this is the only place where he feels truly loved. So I think he's gonna be okay, I think he's gonna come back. In fact, he did, he got better, and he came to camp. And that first week, he was fully involved, and they wanted to keep him around for a while, so they, they figured out a way to make him like a counselor. So they said, would you stay another week and be one of our junior counselors? And so he did that. And, and Michael began to sit in on the counseling meetings when they would, excuse me, the counselor meetings, and in those counselor meetings, they were talking about Christmas and the true meaning of Christmas, what Christmas is all about. And Michael was listening, and for the first time, he was starting to hear about Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ uh, not, was not just a baby born in a manger but ultimately died on the cross. And then towards the end of that week, it was Michael's birthday, and the counselors threw him a surprise birthday party. And Michael says that that was the final moment where he was overwhelmed by the love that all the people at this camp had for him. He was finally accepted for who he was. And it was shortly after that that Michael placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as his Savior. And now a couple of years later, Michael is one of the most passionate counselors there at the camp. And Greg says, one day I want Michael to run the camp because he's that passionate about what, he, what we're doing here. But Greg's very clear to point out what won Michael over, this suffering kid, this hurting kid, broken kid, was love. was the love of Jesus Christ in action. And when that love was demonstrated consistently for enough time, that's when the truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel, started to take root in his heart, and he believed, and God transformed him. Here's a challenge. Here's my challenge. Wake up. To those around you, look around in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, with your family, with your friends, and just ask yourself a simple question. Who's really hurting here? And is there something that we can do, that I can do for that person? What difference can I make? Could I do something that would help bring this person's life more in line with the way life was meant to be? Can I help bring this person one step closer to believing and trusting in Jesus Christ because of my demonstration of Jesus' love? This Christmas, look around with the eyes of Jesus and make a difference. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would indeed this day help us to have the eyes of Jesus Christ. Lord, we all have a little scrooge in us. We all tend to be a little blinded to the suffering around us, and we get too wrapped up in our own lives and our own opinions and our own issues. Uh, God, that's just our human tendency. But I pray that by your strength and by your power, we could overcome that, Lord, and instead be true servants of Christ who take on the the heart of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the eyes of Jesus, and to love those around us, God, in a way that would show them who you really are and the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us on the cross. Lord, I pray today for anyone that maybe has never placed their faith and trust in Christ as their Savior, that this very day they might make that decision and know that they are your true child and you're already transforming them into the man or woman you want them to be. Lord, we love you. May we honor you with our lives. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we dismiss, I'm going to ask you to stand. As the service closes, I just want to encourage you that after the service is done, I'll be up front here. I'll be glad to speak with you, pray with you about any issue you might have in your life. If you have um, maybe questions about what it really means to follow Jesus Christ and be uh, for him as your Savior, again, I'd love to talk with you about that. Pastor Ross is here. He'd love to talk to you as well. But, uh, But as you go, I pray that you will go just very excited about the fact that you have a God who loves you, He demonstrated that love on the cross. When we deserve nothing, he gave us everything. This week, be ready to show that love, and especially to those who are hurting. Go in peace.